0: Welcome to the Old Way, a deep water initiative podcast series hosted by myself, Chantel Noah Forbes. This podcast will feature artists, academics, and educators whose work highlights the present ecological significance of indigenous traditions, customs, and former ways of life. Today we are joined by Frederic apfel marglin is Professor Emerita at the Department of Anthropology at Smith College and was a distinguished visiting professor at the College of the Environment at Wesleyan University from 2013 to 2014. In 2009, she founded the Sachimama Center for Biocultural Regeneration in the Peruvian High Amazon, which she now directs. And we are very pleased to have her here with us today to discuss her work in Peru. Frederic, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Following a long and fruitful academic career, you founded the Sachimama Center for Biological Regeneration in the Peruvian High Amazon in 2009. I'd like to start by asking if you could tell us a little bit about your academic career as an anthropologist and explain how you came to establish Sachimama.
1: Yes. uh, I started my uh, anthropological academic career uh, in Eastern India, in the state of Orissa, uh, where I did my uh, doctoral uh, research. Uh, And I did that over a period of many years, about 18 years. I would go regularly Uh, sometimes for a year, sometimes for only a summer or or a semester. And uh, I worked on a great uh, temple there, a very famous temple, a very old temple. And I focused on the women temple dancers, but really the whole temple thing. I had learned this form of dance Previously, and that's why I did that. And then my second fieldwork was on a great festival in the um, in the rural areas, the festival of the menstruation of the earth. So that's how I started. And what happened to me is that I was profoundly impacted by this work and transformed, really. And I came to feel eventually, not right away, but eventually I came to feel that uh, I had chosen my topic and uh, I really didn't have very much to reciprocate for all that I had learned and especially, you know, the transformation that happened to me. So eventually this got so bad that I couldn't do fieldwork anymore. And I decided, okay, this is it. This was the early 90s. Uh I'm not going to continue field work because I really I felt it wasn't quite ethical for me to be there on my own agenda with nothing substantive to reciprocate with. And I, I said to myself, if I ever go to a place that had been colonized by Europeans, I would only go if I'm invited. And this happened. I met a group of Peruvian intellectual activists at an international conference uh, in Canada, and uh, they invited me. Well, first I invited them to join my work with my ex-husband, we used to work together, and they came for two years and then they invited me and I went for the first time, i have never been to South America, to Peru, and really fell in love with their work. And I collaborated with them for a decade uh, and then you know different things happened and out of that, I decided to create my own center and bought land in in the place where i was i was uh collaborating with them in the upper peruvian amazon, and they were working with indigenous people, so I had become very very uh, uh, how do to say rooted with these people and came to learn a great deal about it, and uh, eventually uh, uh, we decided, me and and my team decided I should do my own center. That's what happened. Uh, And I wanted to, you know, for ethical reasons, and, and I was asked by a leader of the indigenous people of the region to help them uh, with an alternative to their way of growing food, which was slash and burn. And they said, you know, the, the forest is disappearing and our children will not be able to grow food the way we do and that they will be forced to emigrate and we do not want that. So please help us. So this is what I've been doing. Not the only thing I've been doing, and it's changed over the years, but I continue to do that, which is to regenerate one of the most sustainable, fertile, and wonderful soil in the world, an anthropogenic soil, which means that it was done by the human of the Amazon Basin in the pre-Columbian times, and it's been discovered by archaeologists. And uh, it's unbelievably sustainable, and furthermore, it sequesters uh, greenhouse gases and CO2 from the atmosphere. So if all ag- all agriculture was of that kind, we would not have a climate crisis. So in, in the process, I learned a great deal about, the, I had already learned with my, uh, my hosts, my original hosts, but I deepened that knowledge. Uh, about the the spirituality of the local indigenous people.
0: Well, I appreciate um, your willingness to allow your work uh, to change you over time and then in turn um, to allow your perspective to sort of evolve your work. Now, it appears that your work often straddles two worlds. There's the world of formal academia and that of the spiritual ecology of indigenous wisdom and knowledges that you've grown with and grown into uh, through your work in India and the Amazon. So I'd like to ask if you can share with us how you've come to find a balance between the two and how these seemingly disparate worlds have grown closer together in recent years through the expansion of academic fields such as that of uh, religion and ecology, and and through the expansion of um, your perspective of what your work is today in the Amazon?
1: Yes, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, Well, uh, what happened is that after my youngest child graduated from college, Uh, I decided to retire from Smith College um, kind of early. I I, I had spent enough years to be emerita, but I had become basically very frustrated with academia, Uh, and more particularly with my department, which was the Department of Anthropology, because there, in this department, Um, And in in academia in general, uh, if you uh, if you were impacted personally by uh, any aspect of the 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 people that you were studying, uh, this was really considered very negatively. Uh, It's called going native, and it will it will wreck your career. (laughs) And This was absolutely, it got to a point where I couldn't stand it. Uh, I thought this was uh, a very wrong uh, position uh, for many, many reasons. And and finally, uh, when I was able to financially, because my uh, last child graduated from college, I decided to retire from academia. And I, I was going already regularly to Peru so that's what i wanted to do and then over the years uh, i've been i felt very free to pursue uh, this um, you know more spiritual path Um, and i taught uh, study abroad courses there at my center and um, you know i uh, we would do rituals to the land uh, when we were invited by the indigenous people uh not you know and, and just to suggest to the students to uh, you know see what it feels to treat the earth not as a insentient mechanism but as a sentient and sacred being and um you know, I love doing this, but this is something I couldn't do in academia, so I really basically had to leave academia i I keep uh, you know a little bit of contact with academia, especially through a group uh led by a couple who now teach from Yale in the Divinity School and the School of Forestry at Yale on religion and ecology, I have found that this group is very uh, compatible with my approach and my understanding. I've learned a lot from them and have participated in their conferences. And I continue to publish, I publish books and articles and so forth. And by the way, a key figure in that group um, is at CIIS the cosmologist Brian Swim, and if you haven't taken courses with him, I highly recommend you do. (laughs) He's wonderful. His work is absolutely wonderful. So, you know, uh, I have found uh, a much more uh, palatable (laughs) place in academia, but it's not anthropology. It's this group uh, that's a little bit unusual, this religion and ecology group.
0: Yes. Yes, I um, wholly agree with you on um, Brian Swim. He, in fact, is um, probably the single individual that inspired me to come to the U.S. to do my Ph.D. at CIS. And mm. um, although there are no courses or no formal training in uh, dealing with indigenous wisdom at CIS, it's in fact, um, the coursework that I took with Brian swim that really inspired me, uh, towards the subject that, that I'm undertaking, uh, which is looking at the spiritual aspects of hunting amongst, um, groups of, of San Bushman communities within Southern Africa. Mm. Um, and so, uh, I feel that his perspective really allows one to broaden one's mind to think um, within the whole earth community and to think more cosmologically.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. His work, uh, his books, uh, some uh, of his own and some with Thomas Berry and one with uh, Mary Evelyn Tucker from Yale have been absolutely central for me. He's he's amazing. He's lovely, and he's indigenous himself, as you know.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I'm very glad. I'm not surprised that he's the one that that uh, led you to go to to do what you're doing now at CIA Yes.
0: So, um, Frederic, on on these themes of um, sort of the types of things that Thomas Berry and and Brian have been advocating for, mm-hmm. um, on your Center's website, the Sachi Mama um, mm-hmm. Center's website, you state uh, that the Center, and I quote, shares a worldview in which the human, the non-human, as well as the community of spirits are all kin to each other, treating nature as a thou rather than an it. And I'd like to ask if you can talk to the role of this more-than-human community uh, within society or within a social setting in the Amazon and how spiritual ecology is central to the harmonious relationship between humans, more-than-humans, and healing the land?
1: Yes. Well, I think that the... uh... You know the, the the talk that I that you mentioned to me <clears throat> earlier that I gave that was supposed to be at uh, the University of British Columbia and that's that's now on the internet <clears throat> on Upper Amazonian spirituality healing the interior and exterior landscape uh, there I start with quoting one ish, uh, Yanomami shaman. Gavi Copenawa and the other, uh, the community of Sarayaku, who are Kichwa the same group that exists in my region, the region where my center is in in Peru, uh, the community of Sarayaku, and there they are very, they couldn't be clearer and more straightforward that uh, without uh, a conversation without hearing the voices of the spirits of the forest and of the earth, uh, uh, they could not um, live in harmony. They could not do, really uh, prosper and continue. And this conversation is through uh, they call the Yachak uh in Quechua. That is for the Sarayaku group. And uh, for he calls them the shapiri, the spirits, uh, and uh, and it is that conversation is, is that that can only happen through shamanism and through the plants, the sacred plants that you take in shamanic ceremonies, that you know them, hear them. And listen to them, and this is mediated by the shamans, the curanderos, the yachapcuna. Uh, so, this is the situation in the upper Amazon, whether it's the upper Brazilian uh, Amazon or the upper Peruvian or Ecuadorian Amazon. But it's true throughout the Amazon, and I think it is true uh, universally. Uh, as you, I'm sure, as you are totally aware. Shamanism is the oldest spiritual tradition in the world, and all peoples, including Europeans, uh, had shamanism. Uh, it's the beginning, it's the ancestry, if you will, of all the religions, and uh, some religions have kept uh, some of it, all of it, part of it, and some have not. And uh, we are, we the Europeans, are outliers because in our history, uh, what created modernity, the scientific revolution and the beginning of capitalism, um, was based on uh, what was seen at the time as the necessary murder of the uh, cosmology of uh, shamanic, if you will, cosmology. Uh, and the two uh, centuries that are associated with the scientific revolution, the 16th and the 17th century, are also called the burning times. So they burned the so-called witches, that is, all the oral healers, of which there were many different kinds, as well as the literate occult philosophers that shared this worldview, which is usually referred to as anima mundi, the soul of the world. And you couldn't have Western modernity without that murder. That was very violent, and it murdered the people holding that view, but it, it, it murdered that uh, worldview and replaced it with uh, the worldview of an insentient mechanical cosmos and Earth, uh, and an economic system that uh, exploits and that uh, you know makes profit from what has been called since then natural resources. So things that humans want and need to make money with. So it's a, it's a profoundly different relationship. And we are, we are unique. Uh, if you look cross-culturally, I and mean, of course, when one says that, especially an anthropologist, you can't say all, but, uh, you know, teaching anthropology, you read a lot about many, many, many cultures, and I have yet to find a culture that does not believe, does not hold that Uh, the earth and the cosmos is alive and sacred, Uh, we are unique in that. Not only are we unique, but we have established it as the truth, scientifically. So we have two truths, the religious truth, which deals with some other domain, which which has to do with belief, and then scientific truth, which deals with nature. Mr. Cosmos, we are unique in this, and and by having done that, we, uh, you know, extract, exploit, damage the Earth and the people of the Earth (laughs) that that also goes with it, and it's it's taken unbelievably proportion. I mean, it's as as we all know. And it's become a globalized way of being, and that's happened, you know, through colonization and globalization and various processes, but it started in Western Europe, and it started with the murder of Mundi. and it's a catastrophe. It is leading us to destroy the earth. Things are really getting very bad, very very bad, and worse every day, as you know. And I think the pandemic we are living now is connected to the ecological disaster because, uh, you know, viruses jump from wild animals to humans partly because the habitat of the wild animals is disappearing. So, the you know, they're getting closer to each other and this can happen. So, um, uh, unless we can somehow recover a sense of the sacrality of the non-human world and its being sentient, alive, and sacred, and... Uh, either revive or devise rituals that uh, assert and create this, we are heading for self-destruction.
0: Well, um, Frederick, I really uh, appreciate you uh, sort of highlighting um, in a sense uh, a type of um, genocide of Western um, shamanism. I think mm-hmm. this is one of the major challenges that um, people of Western origin discuss at a place like CIS is mm. um, how do we reclaim our own indigenous roots? Exactly. Uh, exactly. We have an inkling that they existed, um, but the destruction was so vast and so total. And as you've kind of mentioned, um, an entire new way of being and an entire culture um basically replaced what was and then that went on to um, spread itself around the world and and to colonize um, other cultures and you mentioned these two truths which have really been fundamental in um, disconnecting us from our our environment uh, and also disconnecting us from um, solidarity with other indigenous cultures and the the, the one truth is this truth of belief, uh, where on a very basic historical and anthropological level, we are taught um, that sort of pre-Neolithic culture was in fact not culture, and was void of spirituality and and void of religious practice. And of course, Mm -hmm. you're highlighting and Even the work I'm studying highlighting that this is not true um, as shamanism in a sense can be framed as the basis for all uh, spiritual and religious practice. Then then the second truth, uh, which kind of leads me into my next question, um, is the scientific truth, which really changed the way that we as humans engaged with the rest of the world insofar as it changed the way that we um, understood how to know things. And so uh, through a recent volume that that was just published um, through this uh, Religion and Ecology group, um, through the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology, uh, you you, um, contributed an article in that volume, Uh, called reanimating the world amazonian shamanism Mm -hmm. and one of the things that really struck me about what you highlight is the role of non-rational consciousness in the development of indigenous ways of knowing Mm -hmm. and it seems strange for us um, to to think that we need to learn how to access non-rational consciousness when uh, this was our primarily uh, our way of being um for centuries but in the west today in the last few hundred years we're taught to solve problems by gaining knowledge only through rational yes. means yes. so i'd like to ask if you can sort of explain um for the listener um how what do you see as the the main difference between these two worldviews and, and, um, why do you believe that it's so important for us across cultures to start accessing, um, non-rational consciousness, uh, as a way of, of knowing and as a way of engaging with, uh, the human and non-human world.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, Well, let me first try to make very clear that I'm not advocating uh, getting rid of a rational mode of knowing. That is absolutely necessary. It's necessary in hunting. You have to focus very clearly and measure and know know, in this way. But uh, that's usually associated with the left brain. But there's also the right brain. And there's a wonderful book by Jan Schlein, uh, McGilchrist, M- Jan He argues, and he's got very good uh, evidence, um, that language came from the right brain, from music and from dancing. Um, and that, and then it's a, it's, it's a huge book. And then he does also cultural, Critique of the West that has, you know, we have we are very unbalanced. We have uh, placed all our <laughs> all, all our value on the left brain, um, and the right brain is for arts and music and dance. But it's, you know, it it. And he says this is this is very problematic, and it's more than problematic. It's it's essential that. Uh, we uh, we rediscover the right brain mode of being, which is intuitive, holistic, um, uh, if you want to say non-rational, uh, in the sense that uh, it sees patterns emerging from the whole, whereas with... The left brain and rationality, you focus laser precision and you put a boundary around what you're focusing it and then you see it very clearly. It, it, it's necessary. It's absolutely indispensable. But when you make that the only mode of knowing, that is when it becomes very, very dangerous. And that is what the fact that in academia, that's the only currency that is valued is what made me leave. I could not bear it. Basically, I could no longer bear it. And uh, for me, just because of um, you know what is happening in where I am in the upper uh, Peruvian Amazon, Shamanism is very alive. And uh, so I and, and my hosts who invited me there to begin with. Um, do ayahuasca regularly so they say, you know, you do it and I had never done any psychedelics before <laughs> somehow I missed that whole 60s thing and uh, so I did it with them and uh, and I have not stopped because uh, it was it was just extraordinary I needed it very deeply and it also opened the gates to some of the most powerful, deep, extraordinary, mystical experiences I have ever had. And and now I'm, for the first time, but I never wrote about it. Now I'm engaged in writing because um, somebody very close to me, the son of the woman with whom I created my center, whom I've known since he's 15, was uh, four years ago initiated by the spirits, totally against his will. (laughs) He didn't want it. They had no choice about it. They just said, I'm sorry. We chose you. That's your destiny and do it. And after, you know, some some difficulty at the beginning uh, to accept this path, he has embraced it eventually after two years more or less and has become very well-recognized shaman. So I'm writing with him about his experiences which are extraordinary and and because he's not indigenous he's a mix of many cultures chinese mestizo indigenous white uh, and his parents raised him completely and are completely secular people so he knew nothing about any religion (laughs) Uh, but there it is and uh, and uh, so it's absolutely fascinating. I'm beginning on that path. Uh, it's very daunting for me because I've never done anything remotely like that. But I am he. You know, we both want to do that. Uh, I want to do it because he tells me everything, and it is just so extraordinary. And then his healing powers. Uh, are so fantastic and so powerful that, you know, I just have to write about it. So it's both his voice and then my commentary more or less that not sure how it's going to evolve, but that's how I'm beginning. And and part of why I'm doing this also is because uh, to make it very concrete and to show that this Shamanic path is universal and is open to anyone. You do not have to be an indigenous person uh, to to be able to to become a shaman or at, or at least participate in that in that process. Uh, and it's extremely efficacious. And it's, in a sense, it kind of fits, I believe, uh, what people from modernity <clears throat> can do. It, it, it's accessible. Uh, you can do it and have the benefits uh, if you do it right, of course, and with the right shaman. Uh, there yeah, are bad shamans out there, but, <laughs> but if you, you know, if you're careful and you find the right shaman, uh, this is this is something that kind of takes you to a place that our knowledge, our culture is unable to take you there. I, I mean, this is a very maybe I should I should back up a little bit. I think it's possible. People have mystical experiences without doing shamanic uh, uh, ceremonies. But it's very rare, and certainly in academia, it is frowned upon totally. So our knowledge system is uh, designed um, to prevent us from going there. And I felt it keenly, and that's why I just. Got to the point where I was so depressed in academia, I had to leave. I had to wait for financial reasons, uh, you know, I needed my salary. But uh, it got me very depressed and I wanted freedom and I wanted to be able to go where I needed to go. And it's just gotten more, uh, more well-defined and more powerful with the years.
0: So um, it's really interesting how it appears as if um, your work now with the shaman at Sachimama is sort of bringing you back full circle uh, in the sense that you are are finally engaging um, in an exploratory process of co-research um, mm-hmm. that is really trying... Um, to theoretically, philosophically, and and somatically um, bring an understanding of uh, healing uh, to Western consciousness. Uh, and this this healing um, takes place in the material realm, but but you've also recently started to speak a lot about how external exterior, And material healing is only possible uh, once interior healing takes place. And um, this is also something that has been a great criticism, say, for example, within the ecological or environmental Mm -hmm. movement, is Mm -hmm. its focus um, only on the exterior. Mm -hmm. And... um, so I'd like you to, to maybe just go back to this, this idea of healing in a, in a more holistic sense. Yes. And for you to maybe explain to us why it's so important for that interior healing to take place be, before we can begin to heal um, with the earth, with our environment and, and with our fellow species.
1: Well, yes, absolutely. Uh, I don't want to say categorically that there is no good work that can be done in the traditional ecological activism uh, research. Uh, There is good work that can be done. But uh, as I have learned from my work with regenerating this extraordinary pre-Columbian anthropogenic soil, in all the publication, there is not a word about the spirituality. And I learned from my indigenous collaborators that uh, the ceramic shards that are found in the soil everywhere come from offerings. And uh, so, you know, they have participated in these offering ceremonies and so forth. So, you know, if you do not uh, include this, and as as it's not included, you know, they focus on the technique and, and the ecology as as the outside, uh we're gonna be back to square one because we cannot continue to relate to the non human world as if the non human world uh was insentient and mechanical. And without agency um, we ha- and, and, and not uh, and not sacred because it's only if if the sacrality the spiritual aspect is included that that you can you know you, you think twice or, or that that it can it can put the brakes on extractivism and exploitation of what 's called uh, natural resources, are miscalled natural resources. Uh, so this shift is, of course, the shift that happens in us, in our mindset. In our, and, and that mindset affects our emotion, where well, you know, it's not that the mind and the heart are not connected, they're totally one, actually. And uh so that transformation has to be has to happen. Uh, and I have, <laughs> I have said that in, in writing and published it, that if we do not do this and continue to treat uh, the non human world as external to us and as mechanical and incentive, as most, I would say all, but it's always dangerous to say that, most literature on this pre-Columbian soil, anthropogenic soil, so extraordinary, is an example of, you, you know, it just disappears, the spirituality disappears, how we relate to it disappears, and uh, and to me that is fundamental, and because it is so absent in the the knowledge production, uh, as well as the activism, I highlight it, I emphasize it, uh, simply because uh, very few people do. Uh, certainly academic experts, scientists, they don't. And they don't because they are not allowed in academia. You're simply not allowed. I have lived this. It has wrecked me. And it has led me to leave academia because I couldn't stand it. Of course, C I S is different, and you have Brian Swim and other people, wonderful people at C I S. But I was in straight academia, if you want to talk this way. I was at Smith College, Northeast, you know, elite academia. But in most academia, I mean, all the California system, University of California, and all the all the universities, you cannot do that. It is not allowed. It's cons- you know, we ha- we we have not stopped the Inquisition to kill uh, the bearers of Anima Mundi. Because this world I'm talking about is a version of anima mundi, the indigenous worldviews. We had of course there are differences in, in details, but on the whole it's it's a it's it's a it's a modality of anima mundi, and we are still in the process of murdering anima mundi. If you want to go there, you don't make it in academia. You just don't. They don't allow it. Now, I. What happened to me is that I was very. You uh, know, I came slowly to this realization, and I got tenure before I kind of had this realization. Otherwise, I would not have gone on that path and I'm very happy you are at CIIS with, with teachers like Brian Swim and others and you can do that but C.I.S. is very different as you are well aware it's an alternative uh, knowledge site and one can do that but uh, if you know um I know because I spent thirty years in in straight academia, and I know you can't do it
0: well um yeah i mean it, it, it's really interesting um I did sort of choose to come to this university exactly for that reason um I thought along a lot about what say for example, higher education means. And uh-huh. why we partake in higher education, uh, why we get uh-huh. graduate degrees, and uh-huh. you know, on, on a base level, um, sort of graduate degrees help us to form um, ideologies, to to form systems of thinking uh, that enable us to go out into the world and either uh, perpetuate the, the same thinking that modernity birthed uh, a number of Mm hundred years ago or Mm -hmm. to um, bring something new
1: Mm -hmm. uh, to our Mm -hmm. social
0: environment. And Mm -hmm. um, having come to a PhD later in life after 10 years between my MA and my PhD, um, Mm -hmm. I had determined that there was, I would not go to a standard university because what would be the point for me Bravo. to Bravo. engage in an, in knowledge systems that would perpetuate that same um, exactly. ideology of resources, as you said, the the mm-hmm. earth is named um, in mm-hmm. the most abstract ma- material sense, uh, and all mm-hmm. the gifts and treasures uh, that that the earth has to share with us um, mm-hmm. are, are named mat- materially. And I think what you're sort of highlighting. Um, from your experience in the Amazon is it's not that in, in indigenous ways of knowing uh, do not engage with their environment to thrive and to live and to build society but uh-huh. it's about um, the, the emotional, spiritual and, and a, an appropriate material space that you choose to engage from that either um, fosters um, harmonious relationships um, or fosters a relationship of destruction yes. Um, yes. and I think you very appropriately point out that this um, murder and, and, and sort of colonization I, I actually um, have come to dislike the word post colonial quite somewhat because of course we all know this is an ongoing process that
1: absolutely is,
0: absolutely has changed form through globalization mm-hmm. um and and through our our current sort of financial and money system um, mm-hmm. and and that kind of leads us to this very interesting moment that we um, are sitting in today literally mm-hmm. um in covid-19 which which brings up a lot of things for a lot of people of of course and um, there's the discussion that you highlighted about um how the natural environment reaches such an imbalance to cause mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. pandemics um mm-hmm. but but one of the biggest things that this um period has highlighted for me is um to highlight how people have started to question how we do things in the world and to question the base structures of our our social relations Uh Um, and so I know, for example, that, um, due to COVID-19, you, you know, you're actually currently separated from your work in Peru for the first time, um, in a very long time. Uh And I'm sure that that's, um, you know, made you reflect a lot on, on the importance of your work, but also on, um, our, our current moment and, um, Sort of as a closing question, I'd just like to ask if you can share some of those reflections uh, with us, because I think it's it's an interesting space where, in a sense, no one can say in this time that this event has not, um, in a way, brought you uh, into—I don't want to say um, depression—but but it's a deep place of thinking. Uh, where you don't feel secure per se and you feel very unstable mm-hmm. and um, there's also potential for good reflection during those times. Yes. I'd love to hear how, how this has been for you.
1: Well, personally uh, it's been, uh, you know, I have a lot of time to work on this uh, on this, what hopefully will be a book with Randy uh, my uh, He's kind of like a godson to me, who who was initiated by the spirits. So he's 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 in Peru, he's at the center, and I'm here. But we talk uh, a lot on the phone, and I have uh, I have written down a lot of what he's told me. So you know I've got a lot of material to start. So that's for me personally. So it's you know uh, I miss going to Peru. drastically, but I can also use the time to really uh, get started on that work with Randy. But more generally speaking, um, you know, if you want to talk, there is a silver lining to this pandemic that it is leading more and more people to not want to go back to the pre-pandemic normal. Yes, of course, we we don't want to be uh, Christ stood at home forever. That's that's obvious. That's not what I mean. But many people are questioning uh, fundamental things: um, the ecological uh, situation, uh, the injustice. As we know, uh, people of color are dying twice, at least twice as much as whites. And so it's it's raising fundamental issues, and more and more people are willing to entertain, uh, uh, you know, questioning things that that maybe they hadn't questioned before, or questioning them more deeply. So I'm hoping that this is going to turn out to be a fertile moment in which uh, things that were not acceptable before will be acceptable. Or will be engaged in. Um, I'm hoping that very much so, but well, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the system is is powerful. It is worldwide. It's a global system. But uh, more and more people are are coming to questions that they may not have come to, or deeper questioning than. Than they were willing to do before, so it's it's also a wake up call for many people, and I certainly hope very very much that it's going to be a deep questioning and uh, and rethinking and refeeling uh, many 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 things, uh, because I believe that the you know the social injustice is linked to the what's called the ecological injustice uh we all know that it's the poorest people and the people of color that live in parts that are more most destroyed and are suffering the water is contaminated the air is contaminated uh the food is is you know organic food is not available etc cetera, etc cetera. So that's one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons why you know, people of color die so much more in this pandemic than whites. So I do hope that something something positive will emerge from this, this terrible pandemic that we are living through. I very much hope that is, because we need to wake up, we need to wake up. Fundamentally to what we have been doing, we have been destroying ourselves and the earth and and, and we need to wake up and and change.
0: Yeah, I was uh, sort of saying to my husband, I think uh, this period of time, um, the, 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 the New Testament concept, which of course is also a very shamanic concept in many cultures of... Uh, renewing uh you know the body, spirit, and mind uh really comes to my mind at this time mm-hmm. and um I think that through the work that that we try to do um you know we we hope that it evolves us um and and brings us to a different space over time but this this particular moment just emphasizes for me much more um how important it is to to constantly question our world views and to constantly use that questioning to change our engagement um with our our fellow humans with with other species and um you know with with mother earth and i and i think it's Mm a it's a this whole idea you know when you said we need to wake up i think for me waking up is not a one time event
1: it's right, right. it's a gradual process
0: exactly it's a, it's a cultural yeah. process of re mm-hmm. um introducing ourselves to a different way of being and to a different way of engaging mm-hmm. And um, you know everything you've spoken about this morning with me has has really demonstrated that that's a life's journey, that's a life's work. Yes. And so I would really just um, really like to to you know um, applaud you and to to thank you for this work that is ongoing that you are doing, um, and. You know, to sort of just honor you for that, I think it's it's really important. And it it's even with a long career, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of stepping into um, the unknown. So, um, thank you for that.
1: Yeah, that's very kind of you to see. Well, for me, I I, I really it made me so unhappy. Uh, that I had no choice but to to transform.